You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. They love the steel. hard to believe sometimes that you have ever known a world outside these walls, away from your brothers in arms. If you close your eyes, you can just about remember the smell of your homeland, the cool green fields, the close winding mountain paths, the smell of the sea when the wind blows in from the east. But every day those memories fade, pushed further and further from your mind as your world narrows to the point of a sword. You have hated the Romans since before you could speak, hated the way they stomped into your lands and demanded. Gold, grain, people, hated the way your father looked at you as if you meant less to him than an amphora of wine. The crops had been poor that season. There was plenty of gold, but there were even more mouths to feed. You were the third son of his fourth wife. He sent you with the slavers back to Rome to pay his tribute. All your life you wanted to be a warrior, to be one of the named men, to fight and raid and bring wealth to your village. But now, with a few short words, the nod of your father's head, your dreams are lost. Your liberty is gone. But here, in this ludus, in this school for training warriors, the other men, Thracians, Gauls, Goths, Scythians, Celts, have told you about where you might have wound up. On the fields of Alatafundia, worked to death within a handful of seasons, or in a mine, worked to death within a year. You know the odds in the ludus, the stakes you will face, but at least you've been given a fighting chance. Your training is grueling, first with the wooden gladius, too heavy for your arms to lift. Your arms would burn and shake as you practice thrusts, attacks, and counters, over and over, until the wooden sword felt like a child's toy. Then came the blunted swords. Holding them felt like an honor. Your hands were calloused and hard, but when they grasped the swords, they were like a dancer, lithe and graceful. Their dance is death. And you know that you have the skill to be one of the lucky ones, one of the few who makes it out of this doomed life. You will see the other side of these walls as a free man. 
When it comes time to swear your allegiance to your familia gladiatoria, you have never felt this proud in all your days. You look around at your brothers, your family, more flesh and blood to you than your own father, wherever he is now. You would bleed for all your brothers. You would face a thousand opponents. You would walk into the arena for the rest of your days in the honor of this house, for the honor of these men. You open your mouth and repeat the oath. I will endure to be burned, to be bound, to be beaten, and to be killed by the sword. I'm Jen McManamy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. We're finally here! Sorry, I've shouted in all your ears. <laughs> well, okay, so for those of you thinking that we're actually going to talk about Spartacus at some point in this arc, we're not there yet. We got another episode before we get to Spartacus, come on! <laughs> we decided we were going to tell you about Spartacus, which meant we had to do three episodes on Dionysus, two episodes on the Thracians, several episodes on how to be a gladiator, two episodes on the Servile Wars, Spartacus and popular culture. Here's the thing. We wanted to do Spartacus. Spartacus, the story of Spartacus, because we're both massive fans of the Stars Spartacus series. But we actually wanted to tell this story in our very first season of Ancient History Fangirl. We are now at season five and we're getting to the story at the very end of our season. That's how long it took us to get here. But we're not there yet. But we're not there yet. We still have quite a few episodes to go. It feels like to me we've been building to this episode for just an absolute age. And today we're digging into the history of the ancient world's bloodiest sporting event, gladiatorial combat. Honor is at stake. Honor is at stake. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I'm getting my inner gladiator going or gladiatrice, as it were. Gladiatrix. (laughs) Gladiatrix? Yeah. I don't know how to pronounce words. That's how I've always pronounced it, but I'm probably wrong. We usually are. Before we get started, I just wanted to shout out the two books that were instrumental in writing this episode and the one that comes after. And they're The Gladiator by Alan Baker and The Gladiators by Feek Meyer. Apologies if we mispronounced that. Apologies if I've mispronounced it. So I couldn't have put together this story without their brilliantly researched books. So... Let's start at the beginning. Why were gladiatorial games held? What was their purpose? Were the ancients just very bloodthirsty and battles to the death or a necessity to slake their bloodlust? I mean, possibly. That's a definite. (laughs) I'm just going to go out on a limb here. There's no question that the games had a dark origin. The first recorded gladiatorial games in Rome itself, not the surrounding cities or provinces, were held in 264 B.C., But these probably had roots in more ancient contests held to honor the memory of a prominent man who had died. There was both a Greek and a Roman belief that the dead needed blood to be kept appeased. And this blood usually came in the form of human sacrifices, generally war prisoners or slaves, to keep the spirits of the dead happy. So all dead are vampires. They're all vampires. Of course they are. Right. According to the historian Festus, quote, It was custom to sacrifice prisoners on the tombs of valorous warriors. When the cruelty of this custom became evident, it was decided that gladiators fight before the tomb. At least they had a fighting chance because they got to fight to the death and one of them would die. I assume the other one would be let free if they won. I assume they would. I mean, it was a little, like, sketchy on the details, but let's assume they probably got to live. Yeah, otherwise this isn't helping on the cruelty front here. I mean, come on. It's ancient Rome. (laughs) Right. This was basically a loophole, a tricksy way to get around the idea of human sacrifices, because as time went on, both the ancient Romans and Greeks did not approve of human sacrifices. No, that's what the barbarians did. But... 
The ritual dance to the death of gladiators during immunis or funeral games was a workaround the Romans embraced. And we saw this with Saturnalia, remember, Jen, where there would be a gladiatorial game during Saturnalia and the people who died in the arena would be posthumously sacrificed to Saturn. So you aren't actually performing human sacrifices to Saturn, but you're still giving Saturn all that sweet, sweet blood that he craves. Yeah, look, Saturn's going to Saturn and sometimes he needs some blood. It's like a loophole. It's a way of getting around human sacrifice. So you can say that you are more civilized than the next society over there, but you're still committing human sacrifice, basically. But you're, you're not. You're not more civilized. You are committing human sacrifice. Yeah. So these epic funeral games were meant to keep the spirit of a great man happy. And if you were an aristocrat with a death in the family, throwing elaborate funeral games gave you the chance to win the favor of the public, which could be particularly helpful if you happen to be running for office. And what aristocrat wasn't running for office at some point in time? All of them, Jen. Obviously, that's a great generalization. Please don't write us. We don't need to know individual ones. We get it. We're just going (laughs) to blindly generalize here on our podcast because it's our podcast and we want to. It's our podcast. So although they're strongly associated with ancient Rome, gladiatorial games might not have gotten their start with the Romans. There is evidence that gladiatorial games came to Italy via the Etruscans or the Greeks. Until the early 20th century, the accepted theory was that the gladiatorial games came to Italy via the Etruscans. We know from the writings in the 1st century BC that a version of gladiatorial combat was performed by the Etruscans as a form of funeral rite, and this is how the games made their way into Roman culture. The words that the ancient Romans used around gladiators and their games all have Etruscan roots. For instance, the word lunista, which means gladiator, manager, or agent in Latin, has a different meaning in Etruscan, hangman or executioner. This connection shows that from the very beginning, the Romans were pulling their vocabulary for the games from ancient Etruscan roots. But here's the thing. The Etruscans arose in Italy possibly as early as 900 BC. But the earliest evidence we have to connect gladiatorial games to that culture only dates back to the first century BC. That's the earliest written archaeological evidence we have, particularly that we know mentions gladiatorial games like single combat for a funeral. We have much earlier evidence connecting gladiatorial games to other cultures. In graves from Lucania and Campania, areas that were originally settled by Greek immigrants, you can see frescoes of two men fighting each other that date back to the 4th century BC, which is 300 years before the mention of gladiatorial games being performed by the Etruscans, like written mention. So what we have here for the Etruscans originating these games is linguistic evidence. It's the evidence in the words they're using around things like lanista. It's not necessarily formalized gladiatorial games like you see in Rome, but funeral games that involve single combat. Mm-hmm. So we have linguistic evidence that suggests that the Etruscans originated gladiatorial single combat. And that evidence comes down to us through the language that was used by the Romans for things like lanista. But... Physical evidence, we are seeing more clearly that the Greek evidence is older. Yeah. Like the Etruscans, the ancient Greeks had a long-established tradition of funeral games to honor the dead. We can see this mentioned, including single combat in Homer's Iliad, which dates to the 1100s BC and is probably based on much older oral storytelling. So the practice of single combat as a form of gladiatorial funeral games may go much further back 
the ancient Greeks and even further back than that. And I particularly remember in the Iliad, you've got like the funeral games of Hector and Patroclus and you've got them celebrating with fighting. But I've got another thought of where these games could have started out. So this one's a little bit out there. Put on your tinfoil hat, Jen. (laughs) Can I put the special one on with like the bunny ears to get the signals from out of space? Did you hear how Long Island I was there? Out of space. (laughs) I was like, wait, what was that? Like out of space. (laughs) In case you didn't know, I come from Long Island and I've lived in London for a long time. So my accent is all over the place. Jen comes from out of space. (laughs) Yeah, definitely with the antenna to pick up the transmissions from the aliens. That's what I'm telling you. So we've seen mention of games like this before with the Thracians. In our last episode, we described how the Thracians also had all kinds of burial rituals, including single combat, sometimes to the death, to commemorate a funeral. So according to Herodotus, who lived from 484 to 425 BC, Quote, among those of them that are rich, the funeral rites are these. They lay out the dead for three days. Then, after killing all kinds of victims and first making lamentation, they feast. After that, they make away with the body either by fire or else by burial in the earth. And when they have built a barrow, they set on foot all kinds of contests, wherein the greatest prizes are offered for the hardest fashion of single combat. Such are the Thracian funeral rites. They're so hardcore. Very metal. (laughs) What I'm seeing here is both human sacrifice and combat. So they don't really care about being perceived to be more civilized than anybody else. They're just like, fuck it. We're just going to have a whole bunch of death either way. (laughs) I think the thing with the Thracians is like, especially looking at the different tribes, they all had different cultures. And some of them did not believe that death was the end. This was like a huge honor to be one of the people to fight to the death over the grave of a great man. Oh, it's never a great woman. Is it never a great woman? I don't think we ever found that. I haven't found notice that they were fighting over the grave of a great woman, but I would love to be wrong on that. We both would love to be wrong on that. So which came first? Thracian burial rites, Etruscan burial rites, Greek burial rites, or another culture that touched on the Greco-Romans that we don't know about yet. It's really impossible to say whether it was Greeks, Etruscans, Thracians, some other culture that touched on the Greco-Romans. We also know that Carthaginians had their own form of burial rites that would have had some cultural crossover with the Romans, but how much and at what time is unknown. What we can see here is that there's a strong link between funeral rites and single combat, sometimes to the death, to Honor the life of an important man. Always a man, not a woman, a man. I mean, I haven't seen a woman, although I have to think like if the Carthaginians did have funeral rites and the mythic death of Dido, they absolutely would have had to have some kind of gladiatorial game. But that's just me. Look, somebody's got to be fighting to the death on top of that burning pyre. Like, that would be a a (laughs) no-brainer. Right? (laughs) So during the late Roman Republic, by Spartacus's time, if you were a prominent man who had experienced a loss in your family, maybe your uncle died or your dad or your uncle dad. I don't know. <laughs> or your uncle dad. I mean, it probably your uncle dad. Anyway, as part of his will, he might instruct you to throw him a munis. In Latin, a munis means a task that had to be performed in accordance with a dead person's wishes. And the Romans were very superstitious and very family and honor driven. So to not carry out these final wishes would have been like committing a crime against your family. Plus, here's one of the real reasons these Roman aristocratic men got all behind these games 
names besides the honor. This was a great chance to show off and gain political support and votes during a campaign cycle. So in addition to being family and honor and duty bound, they also allowed the person throwing the game to gain important political clout and kudos. And sometimes, you know, these munices which were supposed to be thrown near to the person's death got thrown nearer to a political campaign, even if that took place quite long after that person's death. I'm looking at you, Julius Caesar. That's who I'm looking at. Yeah, I think Julius Caesar's dad died like a really long time before he was going to throw funeral games for him. I feel like he died like 10 or 20 years before he decides to throw the gladiatorial games for him. The thing about the munis is they don't say when you have to fulfill the task, just that you eventually have to fulfill the task. The Romans and Greeks believed that these funeral rites helped their loved ones to cross over into the underworld. The ancient Greeks even believed that the spilling of blood appeased the dead and made them happy. So making sure these gladiatorial bouts were carried out was an important step in honoring the dead person. Some Roman aristocrats left very detailed instructions on how much should be spent on their munis, which fighters they wanted hired, and when they wanted their epic celebrations to be held. I mean, it's pretty morbid when you think about it. And also, also very type A, but I kind of get it. Like if I'm asking you to throw a party to celebrate me, I might have some strong feels about how you throw that party. When Jen was telling me about this fact, she texted me just apropos of nothing out of the blue. You'd be the kind of person who sent very elaborate instructions for your munis, wouldn't you? (laughs) I think you would. You would send me very elaborate instructions down to like what I have to wear, the poem I have to read to announce your games, which mythological or ancient world battle you want me to have them stage. It would be a lot. I would want to stage manage from beyond is basically what I'd want to do. In some ways, you can kind of see like a grieving process for both the person who's passed away and the family because because like it feels like this is this thing you have to do to honor them and also like they kind of have a say in how it was and you feel like there's this great sort of like celebration of their life by killing other people maybe that's great (laughs) and my celebration of life i just be like what the fuck are you guys doing why aren't you watering the grass with your blood well i mean the thing about that is ancient romans and the ancient greeks believed that giving blood sacrifices to the dead allowed them to sort of like have some kind of feeling of the world they have lost and also potentially a voice to give you a message from beyond. Didn't have to be human blood, but human blood was more powerful. There's this part in the Odyssey, isn't there, where Odysseus feeds blood to the ghosts in the underworld to get them to talk? Am I remembering that right? You're remembering correctly. Yep. That's like a really ancient belief. It's a really ancient belief. We know that the Odyssey goes back to like the 1100s BC, doesn't it, around the same time as the Iliad. That is one of the things that the ancient Greeks believed. Right. So sending blood down to the ghost in the underworld was giving them a voice and power and influence in the underworld is what I'm picking up here. I think we all know that for me, it's just going to be booze. Just drop some booze down. I'll just be like, hey, I've got dubious advice. Jen has one (laughs) item on her munis list and it says open bar. Whereas mine's like 19 pages. (laughs) Good margaritas that are strong and knock you on your ass, but you don't taste it. I want to taste it. I don't know what this is. I love a good strong drink where like you don't realize how strong it is until you stand up and you're like, ooh. Yeah, all of a sudden I'm prophesying. Exactly. I mean, Dionysus is with me. Always. Always. So let's get back to throwing our mutus. You've got your instructions from your dead uncle. I don't know. Maybe he's a type A like me. Maybe he's just like open bar like Jen. Maybe he's a type AB like me. A type OB. (laughs) (laughs) And then once you open the bar, he decides like, hey, now I'm going to give you all the advice. (laughs) Because he's drunk. So he's going to hold forth. (laughs) Oh, war elephants for life. 100%. 
Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So, you've got your instructions from your dead uncle. Now you need to enlist the services of a lanista or a gladiator trainer and manager. During the Roman Republic, lanistae dealt directly with aristocrats. They engaged in discussions and bartered for their fighters to perform in high-profile munices and seasonal games. This changed later on with the rise of the Roman Empire, but for the purposes of this podcast and because all this is leading up to the story of Spartacus, which we swear to God we will eventually get to, we're just going to focus on what happened during the Republic. The gladiator industry was the Wild West during the Roman Republic. There were no hard and fast rules. Some Leniste and Ludi, or gladiator schools, were better than others. Some produced more champions which meant that they were able to charge a premium for their fighters. Some were run by professionals, i.e. the Leniste, and some were run by aristocrats. Aristocrats. (laughs) Aristocrats? I mean, that's also correct. (laughs) Some were run by aristocrats who dabbled in the sport. Aristocrats weren't able to professionally run a gladiator school. They were only able to own one as a hobby, something Julius Caesar actually did because of course he did because he was a self-aggrandizing asshole and a baby populist and then he was a full-grown populist. Talking about you, Julius Caesar, I hope your ears are ringing. Owning a gladiator school was considered something for the lower classes beneath the Roman aristocracy, But to have an amateur interest in gladiators, to own a few fighters, or even a school if you were super ultra rich was fine. But of course, like you personally, the rich person wouldn't be hands-on managing everything. You'd have someone doing that for you. You would have a hands-on manager who was actually doing all the hard work and doing the administration and getting everything together. You would just like be the guy who had their name on the school. So it's basically like patronage, I'm thinking, right? I guess it depends on the aristocrat and like how upper class they were how invested they were in the games. Like, essentially, it would vary. Like, I imagine with Julius Caesar, it was his gladiator school, but I doubt he did very much with it. He was a very busy guy. Like, he probably came once or twice a year, looked at his fighters, and then was like, oh, yeah, fight those guys. Right, like, he probably had a lot to say about what they wore and the spectacle and how many of them got to fight where. But he wasn't, let's be clear, he wasn't, like, in the trenches doing all the managing day to day. No, he had too much to do. And I imagine other aristocrats of that social standing in Elk were probably in the same place. 
Anyway, let's get back to throwing that newness. So once you've booked your gladiators, the games could be held in a variety of places. There were some big towns like Pompeii and Capua that had their own amphitheaters, but smaller towns had to make do with smaller venues, sometimes just their own marketplace agora. The bigger the venue, the bigger the show. So there was vying for where your munis got thrown, with the wealthy jockeying for bigger amphitheaters and the less well-off having to settle for smaller venues. It is worth noting that, you know, everyone thinks of the Roman Colosseum as where all the gladiatorial like fights took place. It wasn't built yet. The Roman Colosseum wasn't built for several centuries. So, you know, they would flood the field of Mars sometimes if they wanted to have naval battles. But even in Rome, they didn't have the epic grand scale yet. And I wonder, there's a part of me that wonders if it's because places like Capua and Pompeii were kind of like summery resort towns where people would go to when it got to be like too hot to be in Rome. And if they just put on big spectacles there for rich people who were out in like their summer houses. Possibly. So they're like, oh, we're not going to watch the gladiatorial games in the winter. We'll have the theater then. Could be wrong. We're just speculating here, writing some fan fiction. I never took off that tinfoil hat with bunny ears. You don't know what I'm getting through those ears. (laughs) Basically, Jen is picking up transmissions from the aliens the entire way through this podcast. Anyway, so let's talk for a bit about Laniste. Laniste were considered by the upper class to be a cross between a pimp and a talent manager. You needed to talk to one if you wanted to produce a gladiatorial game. During the Roman Republic, Laniste were able to make a good living, even become wealthy through the training, purchase, and sale of gladiators. But they were still considered a part of the lower classes, and fraternizing with them was seen as scandalous. Scandal. Laniste had a difficult job. First, they had to work closely with their upper class clients. They had to pitch their fighters to rich aristocrats who were prepared to spend sometimes obscene amounts of money on staging fights. So the Lenista basically had to be a social chameleon, right? Yeah, essentially, Denny. They had to be able to like talk up to the aristocrats who were looking down on them and still manage to like keep their appropriate role in society and be uber confident. They had to like move around in those circles and make the aristocracy feel comfortable and not like they're talking to someone who is like really lower in the social strata than they were. I think the thing about Lenistas that's really important is that they had to be able to work within their role to sort of manage both up and down. So managing up was dealing with the aristocrats who really looked down on them and saw them akin to something like a pimp or a brothel owner, which is not to malign sex workers in any way, shape or form. But that's how the upper classes looked at them. But the reality was the Lanista were performing a really vital service that the economy wanted. And they needed to be able to get the best deals for the people who were working for them. They needed to make sure that when they were engaging who was going to fight who, that their gladiators had a chance. Training, housing, feeding, clothing a gladiator was an expensive proposition. They didn't just want to send them out with no hope at all of recouping some of that money and glory and fame in the arena. They actually, in the ancient world's fucked up business of how awful they were cared about their people in a real fucked up way. The other thing is they also managed down. So they were able to manage all the administrative things that the aristocracy didn't deal with, like how they were going to get the best deal on grain, how they were going to get the best deal for clothing and housing and, you know, the best slaves to turn into gladiators before their competitors got to see those slaves. The housing and training of a gladiator was expensive, and every time a fighter was contracted to fight, the Lanista was taking a calculated risk. If the gladiator was asked to face off with too great an opponent, it could mean that they would be killed or badly injured, and their death or injuries meant that the Lanista would be out future earnings and, of course, a fighter. However, if the gladiator won their bout, the winnings would be worth the risk. 
So the Lenista basically had to be very aware of the capabilities of all his men. So he had to know them really well. He had to know them really well. And I mean, this is awful, but it is the ancient world. Some gladiators that he was fighting were kind of lost leaders. They were people who he thought maybe they won't win. But if he fights in this battle, this other guy gets to fight in a more prominent battle. And he's the real star of the show. So now that we know how the games were organized, we need to draw back the curtain and discover what it took to become a gladiator, because not just anyone could be trained in the art of killing and dying on the hot sand. It took a special type of person, the kind of person who could withstand grueling training, the kind of person who had nothing to lose. Gladiators were a special type of enslaved person. Those who became gladiators were sometimes prisoners of war. The way the Romans looked at enemy soldiers who'd been captured or who had surrendered was that they'd been granted a lease on life they didn't deserve, and they'd lost their honor. I mean, these guys should have been dead anyway. They're still alive. They should just be grateful for the fact that they still draw breath. Fighting as a gladiator would help them regain that honor if they didn't die first. Many foreign soldiers became gladiators because they were often the most qualified. They already had martial training. And also, they may have had the mindset. Many men sold into slavery as gladiators were Gauls or Thracians or Goths or others from the more ancient, individualistic, honor-is-at-stake warrior cultures like we looked at before. I mean, there are a lot of people like this in the ancient world. Go back and listen to The Hound of Ulster if you want a crash course in how that culture worked. And then listen to all the Vercingetorix episodes because we really go into it. Or just listen to the last two episodes about the Thracians. All you need to know is that the Thracians were a martial culture. We're fighting and dying was so important. It was much more important than anything else you could do. So a chance to fight and kill people in the arena. I mean, they would definitely prefer that to any of their other options. None of which are good. None of which are good. Let's be clear. But to these men, fighting and dying individually for honor and accolades was something that fit right into their cultural paradigm already. And the ancient Romans were using it against them to mold them into gladiators. They were basically creating this artificial environment that drew on this warrior culture mindset to entertain the Roman public. So you can imagine the rage you would feel as someone who's been conquered, who's now going to find out you're going to be fighting for the amusement of your captors. But anyway, that's not to say that all gladiators came from conquered armies. A very small minority were Roman citizens or freedmen who fell into poverty and debt. These citizens traded their liberty to the Lenista and became members of the gladiatorial school to repay their debts. And some were poor people who were physically fit and sought fame and fortune in the arena. You can just imagine that, you know. You're a small kid who's grown up. Life is hard. You know, you've got not many choices, but you've fallen in love with the idea of being an epic gladiator. So why not give it a go? You're probably not going to become one of the stars, but there's a you know small chance that you can. And some people would want to take that chance. It's kind of to me, it reminds me a little bit of the lottery. Like most people aren't going to win. I mean, obviously, the lottery, you don't get killed if you don't win. But there is still the hope that you could beat the odds. Anyway, I can hear you asking, because this is obviously the first question I asked, were there female gladiators? Were there female gladiators, Jen? Okay, so the answer is yes, and not exactly, but also yes. I'm confused. So essentially, it's complicated. So for now, let's start with the average new male recruit. We'll get to the females in a little bit. When Alanista decided he had an opening in his ludus, he went on the hunt for new recruits, starting at the nearby slave markets. The Lenista would choose the hardiest slaves. They had to be of a certain size, strong, broad, and healthy, and somewhat attractive because, yes, they were judged on their looks. Because the road ahead of them was going to be tough, Many recruits never made it to their first bout in the arena. Potential recruits also had to be 
relatively good looking. Recruits could be rejected because Lanista didn't think they'd be attractive enough to gain the favor of the crowd or wealthy patrons. Hotties only. Hotties only need apply. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it, ancient world. You're just a tire fire. (laughs) Recruits are often chosen from different tribes and ethnicities because one of the cardinal rules in Eludus was never to have too many gladiators from the same tribe or culture mixed in together. This was supposed to prevent the gladiators from retaining tribal loyalty over their duty to their new master. Once the recruits were brought to the Ludus, a period of CrossFit-style training and light brainwashing would begin. (laughs) Just a touch of brainwashing. Just a touch of brainwashing. Just Manchurian candidating them all over the place. They're just really gaslit. They're so gaslit. They're so broken down until their new reality is what the Ludus wants it to be. Because while the Romans saw Lanista as a cross between a pimp and a manager, there was a third side to the Lanista, a third hat you had to wear, if you will. In order to control their gladiators and command their loyalty, they had to have the authority of a cult leader. The training in Eludus was designed to break you down. The word gladiator comes from the word gladius or sword, and that is what the Lanistas saw their gladiators as. Trained swords. Killing machines. The purpose of your training wasn't just to learn to fight and kill on the hot sand, but to strip you of your tribal loyalty and make you loyal to one thing, and one thing only, your familia gladiatoria or your family of gladiators, your brothers in arms. And who was the head of this family? Who clothed you and fed you and put a roof over your head and secured your role in the games and trained you into a killing machine? The Lanista or the cult leader, and you'd better be grateful because I'm going to just go big and just say it. This was kind of like a cult. It was a cult that made you swear the gladiator's oath to, quote, endure to be burned, to be bound, to be beaten, and to be killed by the sword. I mean, sometimes there were tridents involved. Or whatever other pointy object might be coming your way. Because once you join the gladiatorial brotherhood, you were in it to the death, or unless you won your freedom. But let's be real, most of you guys are not going to win your freedom. In fact, that really never happens. So just settle in, kiddos. That's the illusionary American dream that all people can have something without any help at all. Right. For a prisoner of war or a poor indebted person, this was not a great place to wind up, but it certainly wasn't the worst place. It could be a lot worse. Unlike the Latifundia or the mines, which were really horrific and which you probably wouldn't live through the first year, the Ludus was actually comparatively decent to its recruits. I mean, you would get whipped and chained and branded and brainwashed and then put through a brutal training program that would totally break you down. But there were some perks. First, you got clothes. And this might seem incredibly basic, but as we know from our episode on the Servile Wars, this wasn't a given for slaves in ancient times. Frequently, slaves weren't given clothes. They also sometimes weren't given enough to eat. This was a big contributing factor to the First and Second Servile Wars. But gladiators were given adequate clothes, training gear, and armor. They were also given a good diet. Their diet consisted of wheat, barley, and beans, earning them the nickname Barley Men, which I didn't know. The gladiatorial diet, interestingly enough, was mostly vegetarian. Bet you didn't know that either, did you? I didn't, until just now. And it was specially calculated to give the gladiators an extra layer of fat to help protect them in the arena. So that's two small perks. If you're a fan of the Spartacus series on stars, or if you have watched the 1960s Kirk Douglas Spartacus, or any other Spartacus gladiator-themed show or media of any kind, the dudes are always extremely ribbed, and they are certainly never allowed to even eat any pizza or anything. Like, they are cut. 
And that's actually probably not what they would look like in real life. And they'd be more vulnerable that way because if you get a glancing sword cut in the abdomen or somewhere and you have a little layer of fat protecting your vital organs from that sword, then you're more likely to survive than if you have absolutely nothing between your skin and your muscles and your vital organs. I honestly don't know the answer to this. I think they would have had a lot of muscle definition, but potentially they would have had maybe slightly less ab definition, like their arms and legs would probably be very cut. They might have a tiny bit less in the ab definition, but we don't know. The way I'm picturing this here is these are still extremely fit men. Like, I'm not saying that they're not fit. They're very, very fit, but they're just maybe not as like absolutely chiseled cut as you see in Hollywood. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with that. I think they're still very fit, but they maybe haven't taken that final plunge into Hollywood fit. So third, gladiators got access to very good health care. Unlike the general populace, they had access to doctors or physicians and they were given treatment for injuries and they were given time to rest and recuperate, which a lot of people didn't get. The famous Dr. Galen, he was a famous physician, still really important today. And um, first he was a doctor in a gladiator school, wasn't he? He was. And if you think about it, what a great place to learn. Because in Eludus, you're going to have all kinds of injuries and wounds and breaks and sprains and stuff to really get your practice on. But also on a practical level, you probably would see all walks of life within the school. You know, you'd see other people who are living there as well who might not be fighters. So if you were like starting out as a young physician, you would actually be able to get your training across loads of things. I mean, man, you could see everything in a Ludus. Yeah. So fourth, here's another perk. Gladiators got a roof over their head. In the ancient world, this was not a certainty by any measure. And you could live on a lot of fundia where they make you sleep in a tunnel in the ground. So this is a step up from that. Gladiators lived together in a school. And as they achieved success in the arena, they were able to obtain their own room or cell. They might get privacy and even the right to have their wives and children live with them in the ludus, although having a wife and child was exceptionally rare. Five, gladiators were from the lowest echelons of society, but as we said earlier, they had a chance to become celebrities in the Roman world because the games were that popular amongst the Romans of all classes. And people loved to cheer for their favorite heroes of the arena and like bet money on them and shower them with gifts and praise. You know, it wasn't a bad thing if you were really good at what you were doing. So the more popular a gladiator became, the more money he earned his master and himself. Eventually, a small minority of gladiators, we're talking infinitesimally small here, right, Jen? It's kind of like winning the lottery small, but we don't exactly know how many because records are sketchy. It might be slightly better than that, but we're talking small. Yeah, so a small minority of gladiators were able to buy their own freedom from their earnings, or they were granted their freedom in the arena and awarded a rudis or a wooden sword that told the tale of their epic career and granted them freedom. Or they made it to retirement age and they stayed on and trained other gladiators because you needed a trainer. So there's basically three ways you could get out of the life here. Number one, you could be like, you know, maybe not the flashiest star, but a good performer who stays alive and steadily earns money until you can afford to buy your freedom. You could be a superstar who gets awarded a Rudis as an award for amazing performances. Or you could grow older, retire and become a trainer. Or you could die. Or you could die. I mean, that's the fourth way. These were the three ways to get out alive. Two out of three of those didn't necessarily leave the life. I mean, the trainer stayed in the life and the guy winning the Rudis might come back a lot or even just stay in there and live there still. Yeah, he might choose to remain a gladiator. The difference is that now he is a freed person who gets to choose whether or not he wants to take on this opponent in this battle. Mm -hmm. Gladiators might be technically low status, but the public adores. 
adored them, and they thought they were super hot. Gladiators were celebrities in the ancient world, and women and men of all social classes, including the upper echelons of aristocracy, threw themselves at the popular gladiators. So I kind of glossed over this in our original script, and Denny was like, I'm sorry, please go back and flesh this out. So I'm going to tell you some true facts about gladiators. Gladiators could be hired out as male escorts. Unfortunately, the gladiators had absolutely no say in this. Right. Gladiator sweat was used as a perfume and their blood was an aphrodisiac. And on a bride's wedding night, it was customary to have a sword dipped in gladiator blood part her hair to ensure that her marriage was long and fruitful. And both male and female gladiators, their fighting styles were set up in such a way as to make the battle an erotic experience, i.e. showing off their bodies in the best possible way. This was particularly true of female gladiators, but also men. And I just think, again, back to Spartacus, the Stars TV series. Just think all those abs. (laughs) All the assless chaps. If you think that we're not going to spam our social with images of this, you would be wrong. (laughs) You don't know us if you think we won't do that. You do not know us at all. So just imagine incredibly ripped men and women wearing very little clothing. Mostly men, though, like most of the time. Mostly men, most of the time. To be fair, the men actually had more protective gear than the women did. The idea was to make the experience erotic and very like sexually charged. And particularly when they had females fighting because they didn't fight as much, they really wanted to show off those bodies. So we're going to get to women gladiators in a bit. So we're just dropping that in here. Um, But yeah, so this was a huge thing for the crowd. The Lanista and the guy throwing the games, they picked the best looking men. They put them in the appropriate outfits that were particularly tailored to them, especially when you're talking about like fighters who are of a higher standard so that they look incredible. This would not just be a fight to the death. This would be like a sexualized, eroticized fight to the death. Maybe not a fight to the death, maybe a fight to the pain, sometimes a fight to the death. So there's a great story from Juvenile, the satirist, about a woman who decides to leave her husband for a gladiator. Get this, Jen. So Juvenile spins the tale of Epia, the wife of a senator who falls madly in love with a gladiator she sees at the games. She decides she's going to run away with him, even though this gladiator, let me tell you what, this gladiator is not, he's a little long in the tooth. He's older. He's got scars from his helmet. He's been around the block. He's been battered. He's seen a few things. He's not the youngest guy, and he's definitely not the prettiest guy, but oh my God, whatever he's given off, give me some. Swoon! Obviously, like the rest of us totally would, Epia says, fuck it! I am all in! Of course, this scandalous story was meant as a cautionary tale, but we're we're totally reading this and thinking, wow, who wouldn't want to run away with a gladiator? I'm totally down. <laughs> Juvenile, for some reason, thinks this is a bad thing. I don't know. I don't understand. I mean, he's a satirist, and I feel like his understanding of women leaves a lot to be desired. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so this is exactly the comedic point Juvenile is making in this passage. I'm going to read this passage to you. Quote, Was it good looks and youthfulness set Epi on fire? What did she see in him, him being the gladiator, to endure being classed with the gladiators? Remember, they were very low class. After all, her Sergius, the gladiator's name is Sergius, had already begun to smooth his throat. An injured arm presaged retirement, and his face was seriously disfigured, a furrow chafed by his helmet, a huge lump on the bridge of his nose. He's got one of those faces that's just like, this guy has had some experiences. He's lived a life. 
and a nasty condition provoking a forever weeping eye. Well, that's kind of a bummer. Kind of a bummer, but I still can see it. He's dangerous. He knows how to handle his sword. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He was a gladiator, though. That makes them Hyacinthus. That's why she preferred him to children and country, husband and sister. They loved the steel. Juvenile, I think we proved the point that we still love the steel. (laughs) Everybody still loves the steel, Juvenile. Get with reality here. So those were the perks of being a gladiator. But make no mistake, Eludus was a prison, and a gladiator was often an unwilling prisoner with no choice in their new and harsh life. Dan Vergano, in his article for National Geographic, explains exactly how tight the quarters were for gladiators living in Eludus. Quote, The gladiators slept in 32 square foot or 3 square meter cells, home to one or two people. Those cells were kept separate from a wing holding bigger rooms for their trainers, known as magistry, themselves retired survivors of gladiatorial combat who specialized in teaching one style of weaponry and fighting. The one gate exiting the compound faced a road leading to the town's public amphitheater. Once inside the ludus, gladiators only left for the purpose of fighting in the arena. Well, for the most part. Some were rented out as bodyguards and some were rented out as sex workers. And the walls of the training school might very well be the last thing the new recruits saw because the training process was intense. Not everyone survived the training process, right? Also, not everyone was cut out. Once they started doing the training process, if you just weren't taking to it like a duck to water, you would just be sold to go somewhere else. You know, if there was no place in the Ludus for you in like a more menial task, then the Lenista felt like he wasn't going to be able to recoup money. He'd sell you somewhere else. Right. So like you could just turn out not to be good at it and then you'd get sold on. Yep. To the Latifundia, to the mines or who knows. So all recruits would train for hours in the hot sun or the cold winter practicing their swordsmanship against a wooden palace, which is kind of like a punching bag for swords. It's like a big vertical log in the ground that you whack. Yeah. They would use wooden practice swords to start, mainly in the shape of a gladius, and often much heavier than the swords they would wield in the arena. This was to help recruits build up the strength they needed to properly fight with a sword and shield. At the beginning, each new recruit was assessed to decide what kind of training they would receive. There were many different fighting styles that a gladiator could be trained in. Most of these forms of training were based on conquered peoples. And let's just think about that for a minute. You're a prisoner of war, and you've been captured by your oppressor. You are sold into slavery and then forced to fight for the amusement of your oppressors, which sucks. But not only that, you're forced to fight in a mockery of your own fighting style because people who trained as Thrakes or Thracians weren't taught the distinctive fighting style of an actual Thracian. Rather, they were taught a bastardized type of combat that bore only a passing resemblance to the actual Thracian fighting style. And was particularly created to make people look down on the Thracians and to otherize the Thracians. So let's look at some of the most popular types of gladiators you would see in the games during the Roman Republic or Spartacus's time. One or two have crept in that are not from the Republic time, but we've tried to keep them to just the ones from the Republic. So first, I want to talk about a type of gladiator that kind of wasn't a gladiator, but we see it a lot in depictions of gladiators. So I just thought, like, let's just jump into it. The type of fighter who typically took on the beasts, like the lions and tigers and panthers and bears, 
was called the Bestiarius, and they specialized in fighting animals. Sometimes you kind of see them as gladiators, but usually they're classed as their own sort of form of entertainment. Yeah, and there were a lot of situations where people would wind up pitted against animals in the arena who were not gladiators at all, like prisoners and criminals and things like that. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who specialized in fighting animals. Yeah, and fighting several animals at once. There was different ways to do it. They sort of sometimes did it as like hunters. Sometimes they were just like pitted against two tigers, very hungry tigers or bears or what have you. But they were generally given training and able to stand up to combat against the animal as opposed to being someone who is just thrown into the arena to be executed ad bestiatus, which is by animals. The Dimacaris famously fought with a sword in each hand. These gladiators were often depicted as lightly armored or wearing nothing but a loincloth. Swoon. It's getting a little heated up in here. (laughs) We're shamelessly objectifying all of these people right now because that's what we do. We're possibly also a trash fire. We're a trash fire. You just see us up in the stands with our boobs out like everybody else in Rome. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's just in the Stars series. There are always women with their boobs out in the stands. And I'm just like, that's awesome. I have to tell you, as a very pale person, my boobs can't come out until it's very close to evening because they would burn. Jen's boobs burn easily. Mine don't. Mine are fine. Yeah, I know. You and my husband can. I do not. Anyway, although a few depictions show them with heavy armor, such as male shirts, greaves, leg wrappings, or even scale armor. So these gladiators were typically close combat fighters, and the swords they used were two curved scimitars. These would have been very difficult to wield. Some historians speculate they may have been ambidextrous and probably were among the most skilled gladiators, the best of the best. So I wanted to stop for a minute and talk about ambidextrousness and left-handedness. As you all know, because I've said it before, I have pretty much every recessive gene. Red hair, green eyes, curly hair, and I'm left-handed. Definitely a witch. And a vampire. And a goth. And a Thracian. And a Thracian. <laughs> and a war elephant. And a world. <laughs> and a main edge. <laughs> and the severed head of Crassus. Only on occasion. And your direct channel to Dionysus and Caesar. Jen wears a lot of hats for this podcast. She's very multi-talented. <laughs> anyway, what I was going to say is left-handedness, particularly in sports, in things like fencing or boxing or football or baseball, is really important because the majority of people are right-handed. It's something like 90-10, isn't it? 90% right-handed. Something like that or 70-30. It's a really small minority of people are left-handed. So if you are left-handed and your left hand is your strong hand, but you're also trained to use your right hand just as strongly, you have the advantage. People fighting you will not be able to anticipate your moves on the left side as well as they would from the right side. If you're attacking someone with your left hand, their entire like setup of where they're holding their shield and where they're holding their sword is to defend against a right-handed attacker, you're really going to throw them off by attacking from the left side. That doesn't mean they won't correct themselves, but I mean, sometimes that's all you need is a little wobble. A teensy little edge. Yeah. We don't know a lot about ancient times as to like who was left-handed and who is right-handed and what that split looked like. But yeah, someone who was able to fight with those two swords, who was just as skilled and just as ambidextrous, would be terrifying. But also, they might have been chosen for that because when they were doing their training, they showed a real aptitude being able to fight stronger on their left-hand side. Right. These guys might have started out left-handed and developed the skill to be ambidextrous, some of them. And we see that in today's sports, people who are left-handed in certain sports. You know, think about left-handed pitchers in baseball or, you know, boxers. Yeah. So 
Esidarius, these were gladiators whose name came from the Celtic word for war chariot, and they were meant to represent Celtic chariot warriors. This is sort of a little bit past Spartacus's time, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Yeah, it is a little bit past Spartacus's time, isn't it? Because it's around the Gallic Wars that these started to be really big, and that was a few decades afterwards. Yeah. Exactly. But I kind of was like, ah, let's put him in anyway. So although the Gauls who fought during the Gallic Wars didn't actually use war chariots, a lot of Caesar's Gallic War prisoners wound up as chariot fighters in the arena. Julius Caesar really made the Esdarius a thing when he took all these slaves in Gaul and brought them back to Rome, and a lot of them wound up in the arena. Yeah. So the chariot fighters were typically armed with a sword, spear, and small shield. Their method of fighting was to charge their opponent, who was usually on foot, not fair, and either stab him with the spear or trample him. I mean, who says it should be fair in the arena, Jen? (laughs) (laughs) Who made that rule? (laughs) Clearly not Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was all about stacking the decks. He didn't want things to be fair. (laughs) No, he did not. So these charioteers were very hard to defeat. The most effective tactic was to break the wheels of the chariot and even the playing field. And I'd also wager that this might have been one of the classes where in mixed fighting, you might see male and female fighters together. Maybe. Yeah, possibly, because in actual Celtic culture, you did occasionally see women being chariot warriors and chariot drivers that appeared in some of the mythology we looked at, at least. It's possible that that happened. I don't know for sure that that would have happened, but we did see in Celtic mythology female chariot drivers. Conchavor's sister was his chariot driver in The Hound of Elster. Yep. Exactly. So there's also the Gaulus or Murmillo. These were either Gallic prisoners of war or gladiators who were trained to fight as Gauls in the arena. And remember, fighting as a Gaul in the arena was not the same as fighting as a Gaul out on the outside. Once again, this is this sort of conquerors mockery of a very proud people for their amusement. Every time you watch Gladiator or Stars and you hear these things, this is actually what it meant to fight in that style. Exactly. So the older designation was Gaulus, named after Gallic prisoners of war brought in during the Gallic Wars and other wars. But as time went on and Gallic people became more integrated into Roman society, it became less politically correct to depict them as outsiders and conquered people in the arena. So by Augustus's time, the Gaulus had been replaced by the more politically correct Mermillo. And you might see, I remember in the Star Spartacus series, you do have people fighting as Mermillo, and that's probably not exactly historically accurate. They probably would have been a Gaulus at that point. So the Mermillo was a heavyweight fighter equipped with a gladius or Roman sword, large rectangular shield, scaled or chainmail arm guard, and the chainmail is actually something that is sort of historically correct because Celtic cultures are believed to have invented chainmail. This is like just an arm guard that is chainmail and an actual Celtic warrior would have a whole chainmail shirt, I'm assuming, but it's an indicator of the Gallic culture. The Roman sword is not culturally accurate in the Latin culture. What you had is a really big broadsword that was a lot bigger than the Roman short sword. And the Mermillo would also have a large helmet with a horsehair crest. Also a big leather belt, like a boxing belt, like you do, which has no connection to the Gauls whatsoever, as far as I know. And the helmet would have had a stylized fish on the crest because the word Mermillo is derived from the Latin word for fish, interestingly enough. So 
Our next fighter was a Retiarius, and this was a famous net fighter. Like, you know when you see gladiator movies or shows, there's always some guy with a net and a trident. He's got a net and a trident. He's so cool. We're always just like, what? who is that guy? Why does he get stuck with the net and the trident? That's like the worst. They were considered the lowest class of gladiators because their name meant to run away, and they were kind of considered to be effeminate and not as manly, which is awful. Uh, They carried a fisherman-style net and trident, as well as a small dagger. They also wore an arm guard that extended to the left side of their chest, but not much else except that loincloth. And they fought without a helmet, so you could get a look at their pretty, pretty face. Not very much armor. That's the theme that I'm picking up here. Not very much armor. Remember, these were men who were meant to be looked at. And if you were to be a retiarius, then essentially you were kind of of the very lowest class of gladiators and maybe more disposable. So they weren't as concerned with your safety. So Retiarius were often paired with more heavily armored fighters. Their strategy was to use speed and agility to stay ahead of their opponent and tire them out. Popular moves were to throw their net at their opponent and then stab them while they were all tangled up or to use the net to catch the enemy's weapon and pull it out of their hands. It might sound like kind of a weak category of gladiator, but the Retiarius's trident was a formidable weapon, as tall as a man and heavy, easily able to penetrate an enemy's skull if it wasn't properly protected by a sturdy helmet. Sometimes the Retiarius would be pitted against two heavily armored opponents. When that happened, the Retiarius got to fight on a raised platform and was given a pile of stones to throw at the opponents. But no sling. No sling. The secutor was a type of mermillo that was developed as an opponent to the retiarius. This was the kind of fighter the retiarius usually fought. Their name means the pursuer. This was a heavily armored gladiator who carried a small rectangular shield and wore a distinctive helmet with two tiny slots for the eyes. The armor and helmet were so heavy and constrictive that they interfered with the secutor's breathing. They had to fight and win quickly before they became exhausted or even fainted from lack of air. So this is really working in the retiarius's favor. The guy he's fighting is going to pass out from lack of air if he goes on too long. His strategy has got to be just draw this out until this guy gets suffocated by his own helmet. And the point of this is to give the audience a good show. If you put the Retiarius up against someone who could easily beat them, then the crowd isn't getting a good show. As much as like it's not considered the best form of gladiator because their name means to run away, it's still amusing to watch. I imagine. There's probably some physical theater in there. It's very dark physical theater. I mean, I'm sure I don't actually enjoy any kind of blood sports like boxing or anything like wrestling. I don't like anything where people get hurt. So I wouldn't enjoy this, but I can see how it would work. Yeah, I think that what we personally would enjoy is not the question here. The Romans were clearly very into their blood sports. They were. But as constrictive as the helmet was, it provided special protection against the Retiarius's trident. It covered the entire face with only two slots for the eyes, very tiny slots, which had the disadvantage of limiting eyesight, but also protected against the Retiarius thrusting their very heavy, very pointy trident through the eye holes. The helmet also had a smooth, rounded top and sides to prevent the Retiarius's net from catching onto it. So the neck flanges on the helmet were shaped like a fish's fins, and the secutor's armor also had fish-themed decorations, such as patterns in the shape of scales. This gives a clue as to the nature of this dyad. The secutor and retiarius battles were often staged as fights between a fisherman, the retiarius, and the fish, or secutor. The rudiarius was the name for a gladiator who had earned their freedom. 
They received their Brutus, a wooden sword that detailed their victories, and told the world that they had won their freedom. This type of gladiator frequently decided to return to the arena as a freed man. They could command a high fee for their appearance as they were crowd favorites, and they also got to choose who they fought. They were living the same life as before, but they had a lot more control. Mm -hmm. The Sagittarius. These were gladiators who fought as mounted archers. They fought with a reflex bow that was designed to fire arrows at great velocity and power. It was bows like these that made step archers like the Scythians so formidable. And my theory here is that this might have also been a type of gladiator that women would have been. In mixed combat. Because we know that women, which we'll get to in a minute, in single combat who fought women were trained in similar ways to men. But in mixed combat where you have men fighting women and women fighting men, this would be one where you had a more even play field. Right. And we're not suggesting that that actually happened because I don't know that there's any depictions of women fighting as Sagittarius as ever. We're just speculating that because the Scythian mounted horse arches, a lot of there was a high percentage of women in combat in that culture, maybe one in four. I might not be remembering that right, but I think it was like one in four women in burial mounds were warriors of some kind. This might have been a possibility where a woman could compete in the arena. But also, let's be real, these were not accurate categorizations of different cultures either. So who knows? So Samnite was a type of gladiator who fought during the Roman Republic and was based on the Samnite Italian tribes. The Samnite were possibly the oldest category of Roman gladiator, dating from around the 300s to the 200s BC, after the Romans won the Samnite War. Allegedly, they were adopted from victory celebrations among Roman-allied Italian tribes as a way of mocking and humiliating a defeated enemy. This was a heavily armed gladiator who wore a plumed helmet, carried a short sword, and had a greave on his left leg. The Samnites also had large shields. Like the Gaulists, this format of fighting died out once the Samnites were assimilated into the Roman Republic because it was considered offensive to have a fighting style named after them. So the Thrakes. Now we've come to Spartacus's gladiator types. Swoon! Spartacus fought as a Thrakes. The Thrakes was a Thracian gladiator style. He would have worn a broad crested helmet that covered his entire head, possibly with a griffin on it because griffins were the companions of the goddess of vengeance, Nemesis. I don't know how that's connected to Thracians, but whatever. I don't know. Bendis is Bendis. Bendis is Bendis, <laughs> bitches. <laughs> he would have carried a small round or square shield, and his weapon was a short sword called a sicca with a curved blade designed to cut into an opponent's bare back, and this is not similar to what the Thracians actually fought with. The Thrakes also wore a loincloth, protective belt, and armored greaves. Thrakes were often paired with armillos and legionary armor, and the Thrakes' role would be playing the part of barbarian in bouts that reenacted Roman battles with tribal enemies. And the bout that was staged as a Roman battle that had happened is kind of common, especially if you're at the funeral games of a famous person who might have been a general. You might want to throw a funeral game that reenacted his most famous victories. So you're going to have some armillos who are dressed in legionary armor or who are playing the part of the Romans, and then you're going to have some Thrakes who are playing the part of the quote-unquote barbarian cultures who they subjugated. So these were some of the types of gladiators that wealthy Romans could rent to fight in their munis. But wait, where are those women? We did promise we were going to talk about women. We did. So history tells us that there were female gladiators, but shockingly, there is little known about them. Shock, Jenny. Horror. Shocker. Women erased out of martial history. Never. Never. Some historical sources call female gladiators a joke, a laughing stock, a kind of halftime comic relief. They were sent out to fight dwarves as a sort of comic show, which is demeaning to both women and to dwarves. 
So Tacitus, Cassius Dio, and Juvenal write of female gladiators in a scathing way, telling us that women who decided to enter the arena were disgraceful and shameful. According to Juvenal, quote, What sense of shame can be found in a woman wearing a helmet who shuns femininity and loves brute force? If an auction is held of your wife's effects, how proud you will be of her belt and arm pads and plumes and her half-length left-leg shin guard. Or if instead she prefers a different form of combat, how pleased you will be when the girl of your heart sells off her greaves. Hear her grunt while she practices thrusts, as shown by the trainer, wilting under the weight of the helmet. I mean... Juvenile is so judgy. He is a satirist, but he's so judgy. Listen, you knew who this chick was when you married her. If you don't love her at her gladiatorial games thrusting fighting self, you don't deserve her. Anyone I date has got to love me when I'm grunting and wilting in the hot sun, training my ass off and just think I'm the most beautiful then. Otherwise, it just doesn't count. Otherwise, you don't deserve her after she's had her sort of pre-orgy bath and all rose smelling up with her gorgeous hair ready for her CODIS orgy. You don't deserve her. You got to love her as a gladiator to get her at her CODIS orgy. That's right. So Tacitus mentioned how, in what was possibly 49 BC, Julius Caesar threw gladiatorial games in which Roman knights got to sit front and center. And I'm not really sure if this was some kind of reward for military service. Tacitus is a little unclear. The passage I read was very excited about where the Roman knights were sitting. During the Roman Republic, seats were kind of first come, first served. They didn't have as much of a hierarchical seating chart as they did later on during the empire. So Roman knights would kind of might be sitting in the same area as like plebeians or women or young men. Kind of the only reserve seating was for the people throwing the games or like the governors, like the real heads of state. So um, during Augustus's reign, he changed all that and he really stratified where the upper classes sat, where the men sat and where the women and children could sit and the slaves could sit. Guess who got the better seats? Not the women. Not the women and children or the slaves or the freedmen. They all went to the back. Anyway, so the important thing for the purposes of this passage here is that Tacitus tells us that there were a number of gladiatorial shows in which, quote, women of rank and senators disgraced themselves in the arena. And I'm not sure what the context of this is, but the point is that there's women here fighting in the arena. I don't know why. I don't know if they were fighting willingly or if this was some kind of punishment or if they were actual gladiatrixes. But the important thing to note here is that women did indeed perform in the arena. They were trained and they put on a spectacle. So there must have been a ludus or luda for female gladiators because there was a demand in some places. We can see evidence of this in artwork from Halicarnassus in Turkey. Dating from the 1st or 2nd century AD, this relief depicts two female gladiators fighting as Achillea and Amazone. The inscription below tells us that they fought stans misus or to an honorable draw. Based on their armor and shields, these women would have fought as heavyweights, possibly mermillo, with large shields, a gladius, a metal greave on the lower leg, and an arm protector. They didn't wear helmets, possibly to emphasize their gender, so you could see that they were women. But this isn't the only archaeological evidence that suggests female gladiators existed. In the 1990s, a grave was found in London that may have belonged to a female gladiator who lived in Roman Britain. Dubbed the Great Dover Street Woman, she was in her early 20s when she died around the 2nd century AD, and she had been buried on the outskirts of the cemetery, a place where only social outcasts would have been buried. But she had a rich burial. As described in an article for Discover magazine by Heather Pringle and Julian Broad, quote, 
Mourners had lovingly dug a large pit and arranged timbers over it to make an impressive pyre. Then they laid the corpse upon it and lit a fire. As the flames died, burnt fragments from the cremated skeleton toppled down into the pit, where mourners left remains of a costly funerary feast and arranged a trove of lamps and large tasse or incense burners. Then they covered it all in a thick layer of earth. The elaborate burial posed a mystery. If the dead person was persona non grata, why had a wealthy circle of mourners taken such trouble? The mourners, it seemed, had filled the incense burners with the sweet-smelling cones of the stone pine, a conifer native to Italy. Someone had even paid for a lavish farewell feast of doves, chickens, and imported figs, dates, and white almonds from Mediterranean groves. Everything spoke of wealth, power, and refinement. Tiny traces of molten glass the young woman had been wearing glittered in the grave fill. Circumstantial evidence, the woman's clear wealth and high rank, combined with her place on the margins of the cemetery, suggest that she was in the unique social class that belonged to popular gladiators. There was even a gladiator on one of the many oil lamps buried with her, and the fact that stone pine cones were used as incense was another clue. Stone pines are not native to Britain, where this grave was found, but Italy, where they were planted around gladiatorial amphitheaters to sweeten the air, and I believe that there are still stone pines growing around the amphitheater in Pompeii. I think I saw them and like read on an informational plaque because I love informational plaques that these were like historically significant trees. So in an article for Ancient History Encyclopedia, Josh J. Mark describes the discovery like this, quote, The woman's pelvis was all that remained of the body after cremation, but the abundance of expensive oil lamps, together with other evidence of a large and luxurious feast and the presence of pine cones burned at the arena to purify it after the games, all contribute to the conclusion that this was a grave of a respected gladiator who was a woman. Not all archaeologists or historians agree that this was a female gladiator's grave. No weapons or armor were found buried with her. And lots of oil lamps with gladiator decorations were made during this time. In fact, they were mass-produced. They were the au fait. They were the fashion. She could have just been a wealthy fan. Or she could have been a sex worker. They actually did occupy a similar sort of status where they were both elevated and allowed to move around in, in aristocratic circles and also considered very much not of the upper classes. But if she was a wealthy fan, why was she buried at the edge of the cemetery like a pariah, even though she had such a rich burial? Hmm. It is an interesting question. The lives of gladiators were so glorified. They were like, you know, ancient world celebrities and people just like fell all over them in every way you can fall all over someone. But they were still considered just the lowest of the low, even though they had this immense amount of power and sway over the populace. It's fascinating. Yeah, I don't think we have anything that that is the equal of that today in modern society. So aside from the great Dover Street woman and the relief of Halicarnassus, there are some tantalizing clues about female gladiators in the archaeological record including ceramic shards, statues, pendants, and inscriptions found everywhere from Leicester, England to Bodrum, Turkey to Hamburg, Germany. I mean, oh, to have a gladiator pendant? I would love that. So one thing that I remember you bringing up, Jen, when we were talking about this earlier, was that this evidence is mostly seen outside of Rome and the Italian peninsula. It's mostly seen in provinces. Sure. So a lot of times you see this evidence of female gladiators in the provinces. And I think that's because, you know, you're looking at different cultures. Like Gothic culture, Gallic culture, Celtic. Scythian, Thracian. You're more likely to see a female gladiator because women were more martial in these cultures. 
teachers. Not necessarily a lot of women, but it would have been a lot more than in Roman culture. So this goes to show that despite the ancients ripping on them, female gladiators did exist. They may have fought in areas all throughout the Roman Empire and not just for comic relief. They fought and loved and died alongside their male counterparts for less pay. Probably we don't know how much they were paid, but I'm just going to go out on a limb on that. I'm going out on a limb and saying less pay. Less recognition. Definitely less recognition and for years have largely been erased by history. So let's go back in that circular narrative to the beginning of this story. We're still planning that Muniz for our wealthy uncle or dad. Uncle dad. We just got really <laughs> distracted. So we're planning that memorial ceremony. We've got our stable of fighters to choose from. Now we just need to figure out when and where to have our games. Because just throwing these games was an act of theater. Theater. <laughs> <laughs> it was something that was to be done to help a rich aristocrat win the favor of the public, particularly when they were planning to run for office. So you've got to know where I'm going with this. You've got to know where we're going, right, Jenny? So Julius Caesar, salve. Salve, Miss Williamson. Have you been enjoying our show on the gladiatorial games so far? Oh, Miss Williamson, who wrote this episode? It is a hot mess. It does not mention me anywhere near enough. Looking at you, Jen. Julius Caesar's getting salty about your episode. Julius Caesar, go away. He can stay because this is the part about him. Julius Caesar does like to hear himself mentioned. <laughs> Julius Caesar, as long as you know you're the villain in the picture. Julius Caesar, not a villain. For all the good he did for Rome and the people. No, the villain never thinks they're the villain. That's the secret to writing villains. Julius Caesar is a deified god, Miss Williamson. Oh, God, stop <laughs> it. Listen, we have like two more paragraphs of this episode, and I don't want them to be about how you're a deified god. We're moving on. Julius Caesar, bugger the fuck off. We're moving on. So we're going to have to talk about longtime friend of the podcast and genocidal jackass Julius Caesar. Genocidal jackass? Miss Williamson, I cannot believe. After all we've experienced and shared together, you would deign to call me that. I expected so much more from you. I know. You're always so disappointed in me, Julius Caesar. Kind of like my mom. Oh, let me cry a river over it. So from the very beginning of his career, Julius Caesar routinely threw gladiatorial games to win the favor of the public and raise his own profile. He liked to dress his gladiators in silver armor because it made them stand out. He liked to put on the biggest and baddest show in town. Right, Julius Caesar? I'm very angry with you, Miss Williamson. But I will just comment and say, when one is throwing a gladiatorial show, one must make it the biggest and baddest show in town. Otherwise, what is the point of one throwing a gladiatorial show? I agree with you on that. In 65 BC, when he was about 35, Julius Caesar wanted to hold a gladiatorial game in honor of his long dead father. He wanted to have 320 pairs of gladiators fight during this game. But the Senate took one look at his plan and said, nope. No freaking way. Forget it. Nope. Rocket into the sun. Not going to happen. That biggest spectacle being put on by one man, a raging populist no less, could spell trouble. Think of how many armed gladiators, trained killers, would be walking into Rome loyal only to the man who paid them, Julius Caesar. I mean, the Senate took one look at that and they were just like, fucking saddle up the noctopus. Not going to do it. They immediately went back into session and passed a law that a private citizen couldn't hold games with that many pairs of gladiators looking at you, Julius Caesar. And that's how the games started to evolve. They went from being a small ceremony to honor the dead to a big time spectacle. They became a part of the festival calendar and were added into things like Saturnalia and other festivals as a spotlight to the wider program. But contrary to popular belief, most gladiatorial bouts didn't end in death. 
Gladiators were very expensive pieces of property. There were other ways to get your fill of death in the arena. And in two weeks, we'll take you into the arena and show you what really happened when you stepped upon the bloody sands. That's right. In two weeks, we're going to take you all to a day at the games. It's going to be fabulous and very, very gory. Join us in two weeks when we return to the hot sands of the arena and show you what it would have looked like to experience a day at the gladiatorial games. In the meantime, come and find us on social. We're at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. And make sure you check out our Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, you get access to exclusive episodes, including a brand new one on mythological ways to die in the arena. That is probably going to go up after this episode, but it may be up already. I don't know. I haven't looked at the calendar. But only just after this episode, if it goes up after this episode, and it's a really fun episode. I mean, if you like death. (laughs) I think there are some people who would like us to give you a heads up when we're about to talk about something gory. And then there are people who are really all in on the gore. So this is one for the second group. We get into some details just in case you can't get enough sweet, sweet gladiator sweat. We got all the bodily fluids for you. So we have some Patreon members to thank today, don't we, John? We have a lot of Patreon members to thank today, and I just wanted to stop for a minute. I can't express how grateful we are to our new Patreon members, to our Patreon members who changed from being a $2 subscriber to a $5 subscriber. The world has been really hit so hard by the pandemic, and I know both Jenny and I are chugging along, but both of us have had some real financial insecurity and just the fact that so many of you have decided to become our patrons and to help support this podcast on a daily basis. I kind of get a little bit overwhelmed with how grateful I am for your support. So thank you. And we cannot thank you enough. It has been so great for our morale. It's been keeping us going. It's been making our financial picture just a little bit more stable. And we really appreciate it. And we appreciate you. Thank you so much. I mentioned a couple episodes ago that just before the pandemic, I left my full-time job to go freelance. It was something that was a long time in coming and it's been really scary. And just the amount of people who have just stepped up and supported us is just incredible and it's humbling. So thank you. Some people on this list have upped their contributions to five and ten dollars. And one person fifteen dollars. I mean, thank you, thank you, thank you, Alexa Bartlett. <laughs> thank all of you. Ami Rio, I hope I got that right. <laughs> Amy Johnston. Eric G. Young. Alexa Bartlett. Cracky. Just cracky. (laughs) That's it. Ezekiel T. Barnacle III. I like that one too. Jenea Spears. Liv Albert from Let's Talk About Myths Baby. Thank you, Liv. (laughs) Hi, Liv. Thank you for being our Patreon. Our Patreon. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Thank you, Liv. Kim Fonda. Charles Gant. Jessica Siski. Tom Downey. Jamie Broderick and Rose Thorne. Thank you so much to all of you. Apologies if we mispronounced anyone's name. It happens sometimes. I apologize. I'm also a little dyslexic, so sometimes I get things backwards. And Jenny usually is like, come on, Jen, just one more take. Yep. (laughs) Thank you so much to all of our patrons. And thank you so much to our $2 subscribers as well. Thank you for coming on this journey with us. If you're not into Patreon, but you'd still like to help, check out our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com, where you can kick us a few bucks through our Ko-Fi account and find a link to our amazing new merch. Yes. And if you're not able to help support us financially, and we totally get it, this is a difficult financial time for everyone, please feel free to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. 
platform or just share the news about our show to your friends, family, anyone else that you know who might like epic tales about the ancient world. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this show without you. 